Um, first of all, if you have children, kindergarten through third grade, they can dismiss out the back for children's church. Um, if you have children older than that that would like to follow along with the sermon, there's some sermon notes on the back table. Uh, they can grab one of those and, and then come see me afterwards, and I'll have a piece of candy uh, for them. Uh, I think that's all of my announcements for this time of service. Um, uh, so I'm going to introduce, man, I'm struggling. <laughs> I, turned, I tuned out when I wasn't preaching today, apparently. Uh, we got Pastor Mike Pless. He is with us. Again, he is the pastor emeritus at Redeeming Life Church. He's a longtime pastor uh, in the Salt Lake Valley, and we're just so excited uh, to have him with us. So thank you, Mike. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Long time is a way of saying old. Uh, it's a delight for me to be here today. My wife is with me, second row, third row there. Um, I retired as a full-time pastor a year ago, and I'm busier now than I was then. Um, I had heard that would be true in retirement. I just didn't believe it, but it is. And Pastor Ron mentioned the new ministry we're engaged in, so appreciate your prayers for that. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to lead to great and wonderful things like coming to Green River. Now, I mean that. This is, this is a blessing to be up here. I never thought I'd make it this far, to tell you the truth. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at some scripture from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. I know you've been in a series in Daniel, and I didn't want to uh, make Pastor Ron look bad by just continuing that study. Yeah, that would not happen. But you do a great job, i got to tell you, okay, in a tough book. Daniel chapter 1, and thank you, Pastor Kono, for that wonderful worship time leading us into this message. We're going to look at some of the great gifts that God has given to us as Christians here in chapter 1 of Ephesians this morning and appropriate messages. God is great, he is strong, he is above all, and he has blessed us beyond imagination. And uh, so we're going to see some of that. So if you have your uh, Bibles along there, and we're going to read the first 14 verses, and then we're going to spend a little time just trying to figure this out a little bit and share a couple of points with you, okay? Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, 
in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are Christ's possession to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. It is, it is eternal. It is inspired. It is sufficient for all that we need. And this morning we read great uh, revelation here this morning that you have blessed us, believers in Christ, with all of the spiritual blessings you have in store for us. You have given them to us already. What a wonderful truth. Help us to understand it, Father, to, uh, to take it deep into our being as believers in Christ and then to live it out that the world might know you, the one who has purposed all of this out of your great pleasure and glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Not long ago I heard Ephesians described as the treasure chest of the New Testament. I thought, boy, that is, that is good because I believe it is a great treasure chest. And we're going to look at some of the treasures this morning. But Ephesians has also been described as the crowning jewel of Paul's theology. And I believe those are appropriate descriptions of Ephesians because it lays out the wonderful truth of the blessings that are available to all of us as believers in Christ. And it places them in the context of our relationship with Christ and his church. Now, we're not going to get into all of that this morning, but that tells you part of what Ephesians is all about. It's a great book. And if you want to know a little history on Ephesians and the church in Ephesus, you might want to look at the book of Acts, chapters 18, 19, and 20, contain part of Paul's history there. It records the founding of the church in Ephesus, which was a dramatic founding. And Paul spent many years there. We believe he spent up to three years or longer in this one place, probably the longest place he ever spent in his missionary journeys, other than when he was in prisons. <laughs> you know, he was a prisoner. He was a jailbird. But um, he wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. And this morning, I just want us to look and to consider some of the gems that are included in this text from the treasure chest of Ephesians. This section of scripture, verses 1 through 14, is surely rich in treasure that you and I should know about. We should want to know what it is so we can value it and hold it close. In verse 1, Paul identifies his readers as saints. How many of you go around telling people you're a saint? Um, I see no hands, and I'm not surprised because it's just not something we do, is it? it it's kind of like I could never say that about myself. We don't, we don't go around identifying ourselves as saints, but you need to know that God the Father does. That's his favorite identification for you and I in Christ. You're a saint. And to be a saint corresponds to what the Bible also calls to be holy. And the Apostle Peter writes this. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's how Peter describes you and I in Christ. Same way Paul does. We are what? Saints. We're set apart. The word saint and the word holy mean the same thing. It means to be set apart, to be separated. And as a believer in Christ Jesus, we are separated. We are to be separated unto God. We're his. 
And at the same time, we're to be separated from the world. You're separated from something to someone. That's what the meaning of a saint is. And that's how Paul begins here. Notice that. He says he writes to the saints who are in, and he identifies the town that we believe this letter ended up in, in Ephesus. But you could write Green River in there. I know people get, Mike, you shouldn't do that. Well, I like to do it because he writes that letter to you and I. And where are we today? You're not in Ephesus. You're in Green River, Wyoming, and this applies to you and I today as much as it did to those folks 2,000 years ago. And we need to value that. Later in this same epistle in chapter 2, Paul will write, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. That is, a, that is surely a treasure, isn't it? Saints, by the way, is the normal New Testament designation for Christians. The word Christian is only used a couple of times in the New Testament to describe us, but saint is used many times. Now, in verses 3 through 14, when we get there, uh, thank goodness we don't have it in the original because that would be one long sentence in the original Greek language. Uh, we would have to take a deep breath to read all of that. But the translators have broken it down into acceptable chunks. And in this majestic section of scripture here, Paul writes of the treasures that belong to you and I, the church, through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have these treasures, and we should possess them. This section is a wonderful manifesto of the work of the Trinity of God in securing the souls of true believers in Jesus Christ. And if you read it carefully, you'll find God, that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned prominently because they're all involved. Now, let's just look at it a little carefully uh, in, in some of the particulars, okay? Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in a particular special way. These blessings we're going to look at, the gems of the treasure chest, are only found when we are in Christ. Notice that. Very specifically, he adds that. Don't overlook that little phrase, in Christ. It's very significant in Scripture. It virtually sums up Paul's understanding of the Christian life. To be a Christian means that we are in Christ Jesus. That's where all of the blessings lie. This phrase or an equivalent of it will be used 11 times in these first 14 verses. You can go through and mark them. And it's used over 116 times in all of Paul's writings. So do you think it's significant? Now let me tell you something about Bible study. God doesn't repeat things for his information. Once is enough for him. You and I need it repeated. So is it important that we understand what it means to be in Christ? Absolutely. It's eternally important. But that's how Paul identifies us, and that's where he places us, and that's where we find our treasure. Paul identifies our treasures as being how he describes here in another place. He calls it in the heavenly realms. Okay? And some versions have in the heavenlies. 
This phrase, in the heavenly realms, surely includes the fact that one day, as Christians, you and I are going to heaven, right? And we're going to find these treasures there. And sometimes I find that Christians are always looking to go to heaven because that's when they get all of the stuff God's given us. But did you know that the word in the heavenly realms also speaks primarily about your life and my life that we live in the right here and now on earth? These blessings are ours now. You don't have to wait till you go to heaven to get them. You're going to understand them a lot better when you do get there. But they're ours right now. The heavenly realms are simply the realms of invisible reality in which you and I as Christians live right now. You and I are living in the heavenly realms right now. You might say, Mike, this is nothing that I ever expect heaven to be. I understand that. But we live in a realm where we are in contact with God. Is God not now in this realm? Uh, I hope you say yes, because he is here and now. And we also live in a realm where we're in conflict with a satanic realms that are around us as well, right? How many of you engage in some form of the satanic realms, usually on a daily basis? You have both of those here. The heavenly realms are the seat of Christ's authority and power. Now, how can I say that we are currently in the heavenly realms? Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, which you'll get to if we ever get through that point in some future study, here's what Paul writes. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's before salvation, God made us alive together with Christ. You move from that position of being dead to being alive in Christ, and then he says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Do you realize that when you got saved, you changed locations? The Bible says you did. You moved into the heavenly realms. And that's where the blessings are. Thank God, right? They're right there with us. The treasures that you and I receive through faith, folks, are not physical treasures. I know we want physical treasure, right? How many of you want some physical treasure? A little more money, maybe a diamond ring or a better house or a new Ford F-350 or something. Uh -huh. Well, that's not what God says he's given you. He's given you something much better, by the way. They are spiritual treasures. And from what we've read here, we know that they originate with God in heaven by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we get treasure through inheritances, right? Well, we're going to look at inheritance here in a little bit because that's something you get too. But God, he says here, notice uh, uh, verse 3 again. How many spiritual blessings did God bless you with? Every one that he has. So how many do you have as a Christian? How much of what God wants to give you do you have now as a believer in Christ? Let me help you. Everything. There's nothing lacking. If you are born again by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this verse tells you that God has already given you 
every spiritual blessing he could ever imagine for you. So what's the problem? Is it God or is it man? It's man. I haven't possessed the spiritual blessings yet as God wants me to if I don't believe that. God has given us all it takes to live in our present circumstances and realms and relationships the way he wants us to for his good pleasure and glory. He's given us everything. The Apostle Peter says the same thing in his second letter. He says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Nothing is missing. That means that when you and I receive Jesus Christ as our Lord, you and I have already received all that God ever intends to give to us in regards to spiritual blessings. So why are we always looking for something else? Stop looking and possess what God has given us. Now, what are some of those special blessings? What are some of the gems in the treasure chest, okay? Uh, I could go on about verse 3, but I've got to move on, okay? I know we have a limited amount of time. He says one of those blessings is this. You and I have been chosen by God to be in his family. Now, I'm not meaning to open up a can of worms here, but God's plan of redemption, what you read here, his plan to redeem us into his family by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, that plan existed before the foundation of the world. The cross was not an afterthought to God. The fact that you and I are sitting here today believing in Jesus Christ, this is beyond imagination, occurred before Genesis 1.1. That's what he says. So if that's the case, what did you have to do with getting saved? Well, I joined the church, right? No, if that were the case, he'd have put that in there. You, it's all God, okay? It says here in more than one place, if you look at verse 11, you'll see the same thing. We are chosen and predestined by God to be in Christ, okay? Now, this opens up a topic of great consternation to many, and I don't want to cause you heartache and headache, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to know that it's in Scripture, that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man lay side by side in Scripture. And this opens up that eternal topic of election. Basically, though, I believe election means that God has taken the initiative in his purposes to save you and I, mankind. It means it was his idea. He initiated it. He implemented it. He planned it. He executed it. He's the one that will complete it. Thank God for that, because I got to tell you, if, I, if he had waited for me to get ready to be saved, it wouldn't have never happened. But he came after me, just like he came after you if you're in Christ. And by the way, whether you're in Christ yet or not, if you're not, he is still coming after you. He is pursuing you. He wants to save you. Scripture tells us that God desires all to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's his heart's desire. So election means that God takes the initiative, and apart from God's initiative, no one could be saved. Did you know that? 
If God didn't initiate it, none of us could be saved because you, you say, how do you know that? Well, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's saying God must initiate. Who in, what in, who's included in the no one? Everyone. <laughs> There's no exceptions. You're not the one exception that says, no, I would have gone to God anyway. No, you wouldn't have. You would have never done it unless he drew you first. That's what Jesus said. And then he said, no one comes to me, can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So in those verses, that's John 6, 44 and 65, you have God's drawing, God's initiative. He says, you can't come unless God draws you. And then Jesus says, you can't come either unless God grants it. The drawing is God's initiative. The coming is our response. The Bible never reconciles the seeming contradiction between God's sovereignty over all of his creation and mankind's so-called free will. It does not in ever attempt to reconcile that like we do, okay? I have a library full of books trying to reconcile this. Any pastor who's been around for long has a number of books so he can ask, answer the question, well, what about election? And we don't have an answer. Well, some do, but I don't think they know what they're writing, okay? That's between me and you, Ron. The Bible never reconciles this, this seeming contradiction. It just lays it out there. It affirms both of them. And it's a good example of what I call biblical tension. You know, there's a lot of tension in the scripture. It doesn't explain everything the way you and I want it to be explained. I would like to have better answers sometimes, but God says, ah, good luck with that. But I have a song that comes out of the hymnal from old times, okay? I don't know if Tono even knows this, but it was one of my favorites when I became a Christian because I think this song has lines that help to kind of help me anyway understand this election free will thing. Here's a couple of lines from the song. It says, I know not why God's wondrous grace to he, me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I don't understand that. Do you understand that? If you do, write a book, okay? Second line is this, I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. Can you explain faith? Well, we all try. Third line, I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in it's a mystery. Paul writes about the mystery a lot about faith. It is a mystery. If you, if you can adequately explain that in a flow chart, you're a much smarter person than I ever will be because I've struggled with it for a long time. But here's what I love about this song. It's based on uh, a scripture from 2 Timothy 1.12. The scripture is, and Paul wrote this, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I might not be able to explain it, but I know who to commit it to. Do you? I don't have the questions anymore. I don't even worry about them because I have committed it to the one who knows, and he, he's got it all under control. So there's your first gem. You are a chosen person by God. Now, what are you chosen to? 
You're chosen to be adopted into his family. Look at verse 5. He predestined us, there's that choosing again, for adoption through Jesus Christ. In the Roman world, when a person was adopted, that adoptee had all of the benefits of being a natural-born child. In fact, he was in a stronger position than the natural-born child in the Roman law government. Did you know that? The father could disown a natural-born child. But once he adopted a child, he couldn't disown it, could not disinherit them. The adopted child has a stronger position. And God uses that to describe our position in Christ due to faith. That's a gem you ought to polish up and put on the shelf. You are an adopted child of God, secure in the family relationship. Why? Because God wanted it that way. It says he did it. Because of your goodness, right? No, look at the last part of verse 5. This, occur, this little phrase occurs about six times in this section of Scripture. God did all of this according to the purpose of his will. It was his choice. He wanted to do it. Paul clearly establishes that God's redemptive activity began before time and God's choosing of us results in our being adopted as his children. We are made a part of God's eternal family through salvation. You can never be disowned by God. He would never throw you out of the family. I know there's this theory out there that you can go sideways and lose it all. I don't believe that according to God's word. How does this happen? By God's choosing and our believing. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 tell us this. In the very beginning of the Gospel of John, he's, he writes this. To all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name. You see, there's your part. Have you received Christ and believed in his name? It says, then God gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but you were born of God. That's how it happens. You get adopted by grace through faith. The tension in the Bible between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of us as mankind is quite obvious. But the Bible, again, never attempts to reconcile the tension. It simply lays it there for you. Take it or leave it. Now, notice that all of this, the choosing, the blessing, the grace is all given, as I mentioned in, many times in this section, in accordance with the pleasure and will of God to the praise of his glorious grace. Our salvation ultimately is for God's glory. Now, I know you want to think it's for your benefit. And surely you get a great benefit, right? But it was for God's glory that he did it. And I'm grateful. Notice that all of this is ultimately wrapped up in God and what he wanted to do. Election is an expression of God's love and grace, okay? Election never appears in the Bible as a mechanical or a blind destiny type event. It's not there. It stems from a God of love and grace and relates to mankind who is morally responsible 
The meaning of election is best understood, I believe, as God's sovereign initiative in bringing people to faith in Christ, resulting in a special covenant relationship with him. That's all I define it as. It's God's choice. And you know what? I don't know how you feel about it, but if that's how God wants to do it, I'm going to let him. Because what chance do you have of changing that? Zero. So there you have what I'll call uh, uh, first gem is chosen by God. Second gem would be you have been adopted by God. Now, how secure is your salvation? Okay, I'll open another can of worms for you, Ron. You can, you can address all of this after I leave here. Well, look at verse 6 with me. To the praise of God's glorious grace, he's talking about you and I being adopted, which means we have been saved by the grace of God. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us. How? It says in the one he loves, right? In some of the other versions, it says in the beloved, which is speaking of Christ. Your salvation is grounded in God's pleasure with his son, Jesus Christ. So how secure is your salvation? Well, first of all, it's guarded in heaven. Uh, it, there's no safe or safety deposit necessary to keep your salvation secure. It will never fade, nor will it ever lose value. These treasures that you and I are reading here about are given at the very moment of our salvation. There is no earning of them, and they do not trickle in little by little. They come in all at once. But they're secure in the beloved, in the one God loves, which he's speaking of Christ. So let me ask you, how secure is your salvation? The answer is this. As long as Jesus Christ is secure as God's beloved one, your salvation is just as secure as he is. So what's the chance of Jesus ever losing that? Zero. You don't have to fear, guys. It's safe and secure. It's guarded. And you're going to find out in a moment who it's guarded by. It's guarded by the Holy Spirit himself. Anyway, moving on. Okay, couple of, a couple of gems there for you. Here's some more. In verse 7, look at what he says. In him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How many of you would count redemption and forgiveness as very valuable gems to put, on, put up on the shelf somewhere? You ought to all put them up there. They're gems out of the treasure chest of Ephesians. You and I have been redeemed. Now, um, you probably don't study a lot of Greek. I don't either. Uh, but I did learn that tenses of words have a great deal of meaning in the scripture. A tense, you know, means past, present, future, all that kind of stuff. Well, did you notice the tense of the word have in verse 7? That is a word in the Greek that is in what's called the present tense. It will always be in the present tense in that verse. And what that will always mean to you and I is that it is a present gift with continuing, ongoing quality. So when he gave you redemption, how long is it going to last? Forever. It never ends. You can never lose it because you have it. 
and the very tense of the word that God chose to use means it's now present in your life and it is continuing for all of eternity. And the word redemption means to liberate by the paying of a ransom in order to set something or someone free. John chapter 8 says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You and I have been redeemed. We have been set free, and we are free indeed in Christ Jesus. Now, what were you free from? He says in another place that you're slaves of sin. We needed to be set free from that. We have been. Peter writes in his first epistle, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Paul, uh, Peter there even puts you know, silver and gold in those perishable uh, treasures you and I value so much is way down low compared to the blood of Christ, which is a treasure all by itself, okay? And in Matthew chapter 20, uh, the scripture says, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You and I have been ransomed by God, which is a true treasure. And it says here in the very same verse, that along with the redemption, we got forgiveness. How many of you are grateful that you've been forgiven? How many of you would like to be forgiven by someone on the planet right now? <laughs> it's a valuable thing, isn't it? Some of you might remember Woody Allen. He's a uh, movie star from days past. He's not a very good character. Woody Allen has never been known to express any kind of a faith or a belief in God. But Woody Allen was on a talk show one time talking about life, okay? Don't know what he knows about it, but that was a topic. And the, and the interviewer asked Woody a question. He said, Woody, I know that you have no belief in God. But if you did believe in God just for a moment, what is one thing you would want him to give you above all other things you could ever ask for. You know what Woody's answer was? Forgiveness. And what does God offer you? Forgiveness. It's a true, true gem. It's a valuable treasure, isn't it? And we get it because we are in Christ. Forgiveness goes hand in hand with redemption. Forgive means to give up the right to punish someone for a transgression or a wrongful act or to release someone from guilt. Forgiveness in the Bible requires the sacrifice of blood. And in Colossians, Paul writes this, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's that concept of being separated again. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Christ did it. Redeemed you, forgave you of your sins. And what do you have to do to get that? Are you still working on his forgiveness? Do you keep hoping one day he will finally complete the process? Give it up. It happened the moment of salvation. Past, present, and future. Now, that doesn't mean you need to keep a clean slate before God. That's, just go read 1 John 1, 9, one of my favorite, most used verses in all of Scripture. If when we sin, if we will confess, he will cleanse us and forgive us, okay? We continue to need cleansing. But Christ has delivered us. Now, how does all of this come into our lives? Notice verse 8. It says, um, yeah, come on, verse 8. He lavished on us all of these gems. 
That word lavish means to overflow all of the edges. I, I describe God's lavishing of all of these blessings of like you holding a glass and you're going to fill it with water out of a pitcher and you just pour it and the glass gets full and you just keep pouring and pouring and pouring and the water flows over, flows over, flows off the table onto the floor. That's how God's giving of all of these blessings happens in your life. He lavishes them upon us. He pours them into our lives to the point of overflowing, which means he's not stingy. He wants you to be blessed, and he just pours them on. God's grace is without measure, it's without limit, and it's always according to his purpose and for his glorious grace, okay? Uh, it's all there for him, and it's all done in God's ultimate purposes found in Christ alone. Now, notice verse 10, because I think this is, verse 10 is actually your theme verse for all of Ephesians, according to Mike, okay? It says that God's plan is for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. That's what he's working towards, all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. He wants to bring it all together under his son, Jesus Christ. And you know, one day he's going to do that. And it's going to be sooner than later, I believe. And the last gem I'm going to give you is in verse 11 where he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. You and I have a treasured inheritance in Christ. And not only do we have one, but we are one. Because if you look down to verse 14, what does he say? The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's being guarded by the Holy Spirit. You and I have an inheritance. And if you look down to verse 18, you will read, that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of, to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. You are both. You have an inheritance and you are Christ's inheritance. Isn't that amazing? You are Christ's treasure. And then you end up with verses 13 and 14, and you see there that we have been sealed and are guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, how secure are you when the Holy Spirit's guaranteeing you? What can break his seal? Nothing and nobody. So how should we walk through this world? With confidence, with assurance, with a, with a full knowledge that we have been blessed in all of these ways by the great treasures of God, right? It should empower us to go out there and live a powerful life for him. Salvation, folks, is a, both a message to believe, you need to believe the gospel, and it is a person, Jesus Christ, that we need to put our trust in. It involves both mental acceptance of the Bible's truthfulness, and it involves a personal welcoming of the person of Jesus Christ. I mentioned before that all of these actions and blessings and treasures are to the praise of the glorious grace of God. There's no room for human boasting. Don't go around boasting that you're great because of all of this stuff. Our salvation is according to the good pleasure of God's will, to the praise of his glory. None of us should ever take credit.
we can. Never forget that grace is God's free, unmerited favor to us, lavished upon us who deserve nothing but judgment. You're all familiar with, I'm sure, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of work so that none of us may boast. I'm telling you, if you get, a, get an opportunity, you ought to study the book of Ephesians. It's a treasure house, isn't it? It's a treasure chest, and we can never exhaust it. It's amazing. It's one of my favorite books. I've preached on it. I've taught it. I've read it. I've probably starting another series here. Who knows? But I just want to take a moment and uh, talk to you just personally. In case you're here and you don't know Christ, you don't know what it means to be in him, what do I have to do? What are the steps necessary? Well, I believe the, the Bible is very clear in telling us the process. First of all, we need to listen to the message of the truth of the Bible. We need to hear that God loves us, that Jesus died for us, and that we're totally separated from him. Listening to the truth is very important. Paul writes that faith comes from hearing and hearing the, through the word of Christ. You cannot be saved apart from the word of God. Now, it doesn't mean you have to read it personally, but somebody might tell it to you. But you need to hear the word of God. It's the truth of God. It'll tell you who you are and who Christ is and who he wants you to be in him. So we must listen to the word. And then we must believe the message of the gospel. This is where we have conflict. We think if God wants me saved, he'll do it. But this is where you get that, into that tension in the Bible, okay? God wants to save you. But do you want to be saved? Believe the message. Hearing is vain unless it leads to faith, which enables us to respond. Faith is the response. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, you heard it from us. There's the first step. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And now that you've believed it, listened to it, and accepted it, it is now at work in you, he writes. That is the fulfillment of the whole process. You hear it, you believe it, you accept it, God saves you. Now, there's other things you will need to do, like talk to the pastor. <laughs> He'll fill you in on the blanks, okay? But um, I hope that's helped you some in, in assurances of the treasures that we have in Christ, okay? There are just so many of them. I only touched on a few there. You probably think I've touched on too many, but uh, I could have gone on and on. So Laurie's back there saying, cut it off. Pastor Ron? Pastor Ron?